0: We are looking in this session at design, design arguments uh, for theism, uh, particularly design in biology and the whole issue of design in biology uh, after uh, Darwin's uh, origin of species and the whole sort of evolutionary theory, uh, which many have uh, put as a a sort of critique and an end to uh, this kind of design uh, argument. And we've uh, chopped this uh, into chunks. So here's part one. Uh, Thinking about uh, just uh, intuition and design. And I want to just start by playing you a brief uh, brief, uh, clip from a BBC uh, documentary uh, about uh, the machinery of the cell. Uh, This documentary uh, is called Our Secret Universe. And this just gives you a a nice little brief uh, insight into uh, some of the uh, intricacies of the things that we've learnt in the last generation uh, about what's going on inside our our bodies. Uh, So you look at some wonderful uh, computer uh, graphics of uh, things that are very, very, very small uh, and very, very complicated going on inside ourselves. And uh, the intuitive reaction to seeing those little haulage workers delivering things and so on, the little turbines, is to think, wow, technology, design, yeah? Well, J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig note that in philosophy, intuitions play a very important role. Intuitions are not infallible, but they are prima facie, on the face of it, justified. That is, if one carefully reflects on something and a certain viewpoint intuitively seems to be true, then one is justified in believing that viewpoint in the absence of overriding counter-arguments. And of course, those overriding counter-arguments, if there are any, will themselves ultimately rely upon alternative intuitions. Uh, rationality is grounded in intuitions because you, uh, you literally can't argue for everything. You have to start arguing from somewhere in order to argue to anywhere. So intuitions are key. Uh, British philosopher Richard Swinburne famously talks about how we assign the burden of proof in philosophical discussions with what he calls the the principle of credulity, that is the principle of when it's reasonable to just take something on trust. He says it's a basic principle of knowledge called the, the Principle of Credulity, that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until we have evidence that we're mistaken. And he says, that's the rational way around to do things. And if you try to do things the, the other way around, and you say, I'm not going to, to believe anything until I've been given a reason to believe it, well, then you'll be very, very, very skeptical. H- how would you ever be convinced of anything uh, if I give you a reason for believing something, you say, oh, great, but you know, why should I believe that that reason is a reliable reason for believing that conclusion? I, I shouldn't believe anything until I have a reason for believing it. And you get into this kind of infinite regress of having to have reasons for your reasons for your reasons that you could never, just never fulfil that demand. So he says trust is fundamental. Uh, And another way of thinking of this is, if it looks like a duck, (laughs) then it's reasonable for us to reckon that it's probably a duck (laughs) until we've got enough uh, evidence or reason to think otherwise, until I I show you the duck and show you the complicated animatronic, radio-controlled workings, uh, and, you know, show you it's one of those, uh, you know, ducks for some scene in a film or something, you know, um, which you might be. So we, we could be wrong. It may not be an actual duck, um, but it, we need reasons to think that it's not a duck rather than working things the other way around. So here's atheist and biologist Richard Dawkins from the UK. Uh, he indeed defines biology as the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. He admits that, that's the way things look. So we could mount uh, what we can call sort of, uh, a simple intuitive design argument that goes like this. Premise one, we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until we have evidence that we're mistaken. Premise two, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, from which it follows, deductively, validly, that therefore we ought to believe that a biology is the study of things that were designed for a purpose, until we have evidence that we're mistaken. Okay? Anyone got a question on part one?
1: Mm-hmm. Så vi skal også begynne litt med intuisjon, ikke sant? Intuisjon du du er virkelig. du du er du våken fornuften, sangfag, Design, som man sier her, die vi på biologien. Og vi kan fortelle med normalt, er, er på
2: it's an important way to introduce the whole conversation, mm. debate yeah. just turn the table I don't need to prove it's created
0: right, uh, you need it, to prove it, that it's it
2: not it's quite created so you tell me why it shouldn't be yeah. like, instead of us all the time trying to prove God, mm. just turn the table it's, it's a very mm. nice
0: mm. introduction mm. thank you yeah. Okay, so are we, uh, we're moving on to part 2 at this stage, it's interesting to introduce, then, the, the Darwin and Darwinism uh, as uh, a sceptical, if you like, response to that intuitive kind of design argument. So, uh, back to Richard Dawkins, who, who claims that Darwin patiently tells us exactly how the, the trick of life, this is a misleading appearance, the trick of life works, the idea of cumulative natural selection is going to come in as the, uh, the sufficient counter evidence to our intuitive impression of design, according to Dar- uh, Darwin and, and Dawkins. So Dawkins says that humanity's best estimate of the probability of divine creation dropped steeply in 1859, when The Origin of Species was published, uh, and it's declined steadily during the subsequent decades as evolution consolidated itself from plausible theory uh, in the 19th century to established fact, today, the you know, fact uh, of evolution. Now it's important to be very careful when we're talking about the, the fact of evolution because people use the word evolution to mean a whole range of different things, uh, uh, individually and severally together, and it's possible to, uh, in, important to tease apart these different meanings and to notice, for example, that it's possible to believe in evolution in some of these senses whilst disbelieving it in others. This is not uh, all a package deal. Uh, some things come as a package deal uh, here. So here we have a list of, of uh, ranged in order that I think of as uh, the order of uh, most to least probable, that uh, evolution is used to mean. Uh, so it might refer to the, the ancient earth hypothesis, that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, Uh, 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 the change over time hypothesis, uh, that starting from relatively simple beginnings, more complex forms of life have appeared over the course of time, Uh, the common ancestry hypothesis, that each extant or existing form of life is related by common ancestry to previous different Forms of life. The universal common ancestry hypothesis that every extant form of life is related by common ancestry to one original, relatively simple form of life. Uh, the neo uh, Darwinian, or uh, Dawkins uh, coins the, the, the phrase the blind watchmaker. Uh, he's from his book, The Blind Watchmaker, the blind watchmaker neo Darwinian hypothesis that the, the pattern of life forms that are related via common ancestry is the result of an unguided and unplanned process of random variation and natural selection, cumulative natural selection. And finally, the naturalistic origins hypothesis that life arose from uh, non-living matter by virtue of an unguided and unplanned process Uh, of physical chance and or necessity, full stop. So evolution means a lot of different things, some of which can be tied together, but some of which can be teased apart. So Charles Darwin, uh, if you read The Origin of Species, uh, I would argue that Darwin actually reverses that, that proper burden of proof That we saw in the intuitive design argument. He he in the book argues for reversing that burden of proof uh, uh, concerning design and awards the the presumption of truth to his uh, bold but rather risky extrapolation from uh, what we could call micro observable micro evolution and the way in which. Uh, Human breeders in selecting differences among animals they're breeding and so on can can produce changes in them over time. And extrapolating from that kind of data little changes in the finches in the Galapagos Islands, their beaks and so on. And extrapolating that process to say that can account for all of the diversity of life over history. And he awards that theory, the presumption of truth, and basically says we should believe that until you can show me that I'm wrong. So, that extrapolation of, of Darwin's depended upon, uh, I think, an invalid shift between saying that he saw no barrier to that extrapolation working and saying that, therefore, there was no barrier that would get in the way of that extrapolation working. That shift constitutes, in my opinion, uh, an argument from ignorance, therefore. So, here's a quote. Uh, to substantiate that from The Origin of Species, uh, 1859, where Darwin says uh, in in summary towards the end of the book, if then we have under nature variability and a powerful agent always ready to act and select, that is natural selection, a sort of agent substitute, uh, why should we doubt that variations in any way useful to beings would be preserved accumulated and inherited. What limit can be put to this power acting during long ages of time, favouring the good and rejecting the bad? I can see no limit to this power in slowly and beautifully adapting each form. And so he says, so let's assume that there isn't one, a limit, and let's put the the burden of of, uh, uh, showing that we're wrong on The person who believes in design. So you see how Darwin is flipping what I think is the the correct burden of proof that we saw in that intuitive design argument and he's he's flipping that round. Uh, And that's the main kind of philosophical move uh, in the sort of philosophy of of how we do science in in a sense that I think Darwin uh, pulls. And we can see the same kind of move in Richard Dawkins uh, who argues like uh, Darwin, that the larger the leap through genetic space as we now know it, the lower the probability that the resulting change will be viable, uh, let alone uh, that that change will make an improvement. So evolution must in, must in general be a, a cruel, a gradual crawl through genetic space, not a, a series of, of leaps. And Dar- Darwin, uh, D- Dawkins likens this gradual approach to getting biological complexity to uh, what he calls climbing Mount Improbable, another one of his book titles. He says there's a sheer cliff face on one side that could never be conquered in one uh, unlikely leap to a new sort of complexity. But if you go around the back of Mount Improbable, there's a gradual series of individually attainable steps leading all the way from the bottom all the way the top. You get variation, selection, variation, selection, and you can gradually over time get to the top of mountain probable. Dawkins asserts that although we've no idea what gradual pathway organisms took up mountain probable, they must have done so. He says, however daunting the sheer cliffs that the adaptive mountain first presents, graded ramps can be found the other side and the peak eventually scaled. Well, how does Dawkins know that these graded ramps of achievable variation and selection, et cetera, et cetera, how does he know that those graded ramps can be found, having admitted that we we haven't found any of them? (laughs) Well, he says this, without staring from our chair, we can see that it must be so because nothing except gradual accumulation could, in principle, do the job. But what job, what job is that? Well, that job is explaining life without appealing to a designer. Right? <laughs> so Dawkins says this. There cannot have been intermediate stages up that pathway that were not beneficial and selectable to get to get there, from one form of life to another. There's got to be a series of advantages all the way. If you can't think of one, then that's your problem, not natural selection's problem. Natural selection, well, I suppose that is a sort of matter of faith on my part, since the theory is so coherent and powerful. I.e., I I think it gives him a, a coherent alternative to appealing to design. But again, you're kind of flipping around the, the correct burden here. He's kind of begging the question against design in order to argue for the alternative to design. Now, there are, have been uh, scholars who have taken on board that sort of Darwinian or neo-Darwinian explanation of things and have been careful to, to to, again, tease apart the scientific theory or hypothesis from the sort of naturalistic philosophy that people like Richard Dawkins put with it, so that they, they argue for it by begging the question, basically, by assuming that naturalism is true and there isn't a, a designing God and so on, and, and have said, actually, even if we take evolutionary theory as given, That doesn't necessarily, in and of itself, get rid of design arguments if we don't beg the question against design. So folks like A.E. Taylor or Richard Swinburne or uh, F.R. Tennant uh, would be another major figure here, uh, have made arguments like this. So, Richard uh, uh, Richard Swinburne says, uh, nature is a machine-making machine. we make not only machines, but machine-making machines. Think of a sort of automated factory producing cars, these uh, robots and, and so on. Uh, we may uh, naturally infer from nature, which produces animals and plants, to a creator of nature, similar to men, who make machine-making machines. So he changes, as it were, a sort of uh, analogical argument that doesn't work at the, I- the level of the individual organism and says, you know, that looks designed therefore there's a designer it rather looks at the, the, the scientific description of this process of evolution which, which from non-life produces, you know in all its various senses, produces this whole astonishing gamut of complex life forms on, as far as we know, only this one place in the whole observable universe, uh, and uh, argues by analogy from that whole, whole overall process to say, doesn't that whole process uh, remind you of design, in a sense, you see? Uh, Fr Tennant takes uh, an angle uh, looking at particularly the beauty of the natural world and says uh, the natural world, if it's really just working in utilitarian terms of what, what works to survive, if that was all that was going on, uh, would nature be as beautiful as it is? When, when we make things in a purely utilitarian fashion, you get sort of brutalist architecture <laughs> and so on, yeah? uh, industrial architecture. Uh, you don't get uh, Baroque or Gothic Architecture, and yet yeah, you know, look at a peacock, look at the, the fish in a coral reef, look at the beauty of the natural world. Uh, so, maybe, yeah, evolution is going on and so on, but maybe there's more going on in order for us to explain uh, something else that, that that process may produce. But how do you know that every variation and so on in that process is happening by unplanned, unguided? Random select, you know, na- random variation and natural selection and so on. That's, that's a philosophical assumption that, that you don't need to make. Some people do make. And maybe, you know, which philosophical assumption, that it's all happening naturalistically or that maybe there is a, a guiding hand I- interfering, as it were, at least occasionally? Which of those two philosophical interpretations of the scientific theory make most sense of all of our? data from it. Uh, so there, there, there are folks who have said uh, even if evolutionary theory is, is, is true, take that as read, uh, but so long as we don't interpret it in terms of a, a, a metaphysically naturalistic philosophy, maybe there are design arguments to be mounted from the overall sort of process of change over time evolution. Yeah
1: questions. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the reason, the intro, like, the so, var ju också problem han i of, uh, design Hans? Så har du på design, sæt et sæt af designer, og den sådan en dejdag, gudstænke. Og så også også i er, er, Dawkins sit, nej, evolution forklarer alt. Og så vises jag ja, det er jo vel dybt kompliceret at skabe forklaringer for. Det er man er problem, vel usandsynligt at eh, kunne lage liv fra ikke-liv som är er så avancerat. Ja, er av de säger ni alla väl du som säger ni vill ta dig ett hopp men det är er många, det är er gradvis utveckling därför är er det en förklaring. Och sedan då kommer det att säga att ja men var med alla de där? Vi har ju förklaringen i nödläget men de der, vi måste bara tro då. För vi, vi har inte förklaringen men vi måste tro på de teorin eller så er så bra. Inte sant? Ja, ja, i en certifierad
2: teori
1: är,
2: if you just don't have to take a big leap, but you can do many, many smalls. Mm. But from one species to developing to the next. Yeah. There, is, there is a terrible leap. Mm. How, how does he explain that?
0: There is a, How does he explain
2: you know, From one species, yeah. he expects a new species to just come somehow. Yes. And you, and you even need two at the same
0: time. Or the diff, or, or, this when we come up to the level of, of uh, vertebrae? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the whole the whole complexity since the presumed universal common ancestor of you know first life to all of the variation that we see today and throughout the, the fossil record, says what produced that variation from the relatively simple first life is very gradual random changes and natural selection i.e., if in its environmental situation at the time that random change happened to produce some kind of advantage to the the organism that had it it would spread throughout the gene pool of that organism and gradually organisms would change and divert from each other until they become so different from each other that they're different species and so different from each other that they're different orders and and, and so on
2: it's biologically simple
0: to say it isn't that way right so
2: because I I I'm slightly different <laughs> from my father. Yeah. But I'm still the same species. And if I go a few thousand years back, we have the same genetics. Yeah. So this so is this is, is Yeah.
0: This is the extrapolation. Yeah. So as you're pointing out, we we what we can observe because we 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 can observe things over very limited timescales, uh, so what Darwin would say is we can observe some change uh, that definitely does happen um, in, say, uh, n- uh, human breeding of different types of sheep. We want to want to woolly a woolier sheep. We, we pick our woolliest sheep and we just make sure that those woolly sheep breed with each other and then we get slightly woollier sheep and so on until we have really woolly sheep. It doesn't anything at all. <laughs> it, it doesn't anything. Right. So he's extrapolating from that and saying, what if? Over enough time, that same process could produce everything. You know, what what would get in the way of that? And if, let's assume that there's nothing that gets in the way of that until you show me that I'm wrong. That's what what Darwin and, and Dawkins do. Yeah. Cheeky word, and
2: he's <laughs> it's cheeky,
0: yes. <laughs> cheeky. <laughs> That's right, I was saying reversing the proper burden of proof, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I just enjoyed, again the intuition argument. And when you ask why is the nature so beautiful, mm. then if we are just machines making machines, etc., we would uh, intuitively we would uh, expect uh, the uh, wall to look like uh, mm. in the Matrix movies where we are all batteries Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. In, on our palm. The nature is very beautiful, mm. everybody accepts that. Mm. And then ask the question, why? Why? And then yeah. it's, to me, intuitively, yeah. uh, the, the genesis gives a very nice explanation. We are created in the image mm. of God. And the creator, who also yeah. maybe be in nature, right. we have the same kind of appeal. a, set, a kind of
0: aesthetic sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: So we, we will. Uh, find the nature very beautiful yeah. because we are related to the creator of that mm. nature. So, yeah, it's yeah. interesting to, uh, maybe you can say something more about that argument why. Yeah, yeah.
0: Beautiful? So um, the, the sources to go for this are, as I say, F. R. Tennant in his uh, philosophical theology. I think it's volume two. Uh, but also, there's a part in um, in my chapter on design in uh, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy that looks at uh, an argument that's called the argument from added beauty, that is, a beauty in the natural world that doesn't seem to be there just to serve um, functional uh, sort of survival uh, ends, as it were, that, that, that's more beautiful than it needs to be to survive, for survival purposes. Um, and looking at things like thinking of looking at things like the peacock feathers, and if you look into the, the scientific details of how the colors and patterns are produced on peacock feathers and the amount of information that must be involved in, in doing that, and so on, uh, and, and the difficulties of trying to come up with evolutionary explanations uh, of that, people, people will talk about um, sexual selection in this, I so say, with the female. Um, uh, peahens uh, prefer the, the male peacocks that have the, the, the most dazzling designs, um, maybe because it's showing that they can. Af- they're, they're so well, they're so fit uh, and uh, strong that they can afford to waste lots of energy producing this beauty that doesn't have a survival value. And so there's a sort of indirect value to them having this this beauty. Um, uh, and that's the kind of area of, of debate. Of well, how, but how come the female peahens uh, have a really good sense of taste about <laughs> uh, the beauty that they're selecting when they're selecting a mate? Would, and you know, uh, wouldn't uh, just having uh, really uh, colourful, randomly coloured feathers? Produce the same kind of result. Why? Why is the colouring so ordered, Uh, so uh, so symmetrical, so etc. etc. And this is that sort of area of argument back and forth uh, about uh, so-called sort of added beauty in nature. So that's the sort of area to look at arguments about beauty, uh, um, sexual selection, and so on. Yeah. Okay, so part three, doubting neo-Darwinism. Here's a quote from uh, atheist philosopher Jerry Fodor, who points out that uh, a common descent, basically, could be true, even if adaptationism, that is the blind watchmaker idea, isn't. The classical Darwinist account of evolution as primarily driven by natural selection is in trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds an appreciable number of perfectly reasonable biologists, by which he means non-religious biologists, yeah. perfectly reasonable biologists, are coming to think that the theory of natural selection can no longer be taken for granted. Let's look at just a few, briefly dip our toe into a few of the reasons why that is the case these days. Uh, so there is the, the prediction of gradualism, that, that gradual climb up the back of mountain pro- mountain probable, versus what we see in the, the fossil record. So paleontologist Gunter Beckley says that based on the Darwinian narrative we should expect uh, the, the morphological complexity, the change in how bodies are uh, to increase gradually in the fossil record. According to Darwinists, and he quotes Dawkins here, evolution not only is a gradual process as a matter of fact it has to be a gradual process if it's to do any explanatory work. But the fossil history of animal life gives no evidence that it developed over long periods of time in a gradual way with numerous small steps, as suggested by Charles Darwin and his modern followers. The fossil record contradicts that evolutionary narrative. As the population, uh, field of population genetics and the so-called waiting time problem of how long it actually takes for a change in DNA that makes a a selectable difference to get fixed in a population of animals of a certain size with a certain generation length and so on. You can plug numbers into the mathematics here. So geneticist John Sanford says that historically Darwin defenders have argued that given millions of years very large amounts of new biologically meaningful information can arise by the Darwinian process of mutation and selection. However, careful analysis of what's required to establish even a short uh, genetic uh, word, as it were, uh, a short functional string of genetic letters uh, within a genome, uh, an animal genome, uh, shows just the opposite. Even given tens of millions of years, there's not enough time. This problem is so fundamental that it justifies a complete reassessment of the basic Darwinian mechanism. Uh, here's an argument uh, being particularly put forward uh, in, um, by Michael Behe, who we'll come back to again later, but his most recent book, Darwin Devolves, he's arguing that evolution proceeds mainly, that, that, that this process of mutation and natural selection does exist and does work and does make some changes in life, but he, he argues that that process proceeds mainly by damaging or breaking genes, which, uh, perhaps counterintuitively, sometimes helps survival. Uh, so he gives an example of saying, you know, uh, if what was really important in your circumstances were getting your car to go fast to get somewhere, then it might be really advantageous to pull out all the seats, take the doors off take out the windscreen and throw them away, because that will make the car lighter, and so it will go quicker. Uh, and so you know it'll get away uh, from uh, the bandits who are chasing you, or whatever. Uh, so it'll help your survival. But then, of course, you'll have a car that doesn't have seats or doors or windscreen or so on. So breaking things can often help survival, but that's breaking things rather than producing new types of thing. Yeah. So uh, the mechanism, the Darwinian mechanism, promotes the rapid loss of genetic information Uh, and he argues that laboratory experiments, field research, theoretical studies all forcefully indicate that as a result random mutation and natural selection make evolution self-limiting as to how much change it can produce. So here is here is coming up to Darwin and saying well you know here is one of those reasons why you're, you're wrong to assume that there's nothing that gets in the way of that extrapolation from small-scale changes to all of the changes over, over history. Yes, yeah, someone had a hand up. Uh, so we can wait till the end? Yep. Uh, okay, thank you. Uh, so he argues that the, the blind watchmaker process can, can drive modifications, he thinks, maybe at the level of, of species and genus, but not at higher uh, taxonomic levels like orders and classes and, and phylum. There's the whole issue recently uh, in discussion of epigenetic, or beyond genetic, the genome information in organisms. So Stephen Mayer points out, the information in DNA is necessary but not sufficient to build whole organisms. DNA contains program information for producing those strings of, of amino acids that fold, proteins that fold to make those little machines that we saw in the cell. But they do not, DNA does not contain the blueprint for making a tortoise or a snail or a cow or whatever. Uh, So DNA is necessary but not sufficient to build whole organisms. DNA sequences can mutate indefinitely and still not produce new body plans. Um, Consequently, the mechanism of natural selection acting on random variations in DNA, the whole... uh, neo-Darwinian idea that this is the central driver of evolution. Uh, He says, cannot in principle generate the epigenetic information necessary to produce a new body plan. So back to Jerry Fodor and and his co-author with a fantastic Italian name that I'm not even going to try and pronounce (laughs) uh, in their book, What Darwin Got Wrong. Uh, Remember, uh, they say, we don't know what the mechanism of evolution is As far as we can make out, nobody knows exactly how phenotypes, different basic types of animal body plan and so on, uh, evolve. And another atheist, atheist Thomas Nagel, in his book Mind and Cosmos, uh, points out uh, when it comes to the origin of life, he says the origin of life remains. Uh, given what we, we now know about the, the size, the extreme specificity of all that functional precision of the genetic information and material there. He says it remains a mystery, an event to which no significant probability can be assigned on the basis of what we know about the laws of physics and chemistry. Uh, so someone like Dawkins appe- a- appealing to... Darwinian, you know, neo Darwinian theory to explain away the appearance of design in life, in a sense, you could say, well, that's irrelevant to this basic question of how, well, how do you have anything living capable of undergoing change by evolution, by natural selection, in the first place? You can't explain the origin of something capable of evolving by natural selection by appealing to the process of natural selection. Because that process of the Darwinian blind watchmaker process can't take place until you have an organism that, that reproduces with, changes, with variation that's able to be selected. So another quote from an atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, points out that Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. Darwinian evolution doesn't explain or even claim, even purport to explain, how life came to arise in the first place. Any questions on part three? We have two more parts to go. Uh, yeah, we're doing okay. Mm-hmm.
2: okay. Mm. Mm. So, for when we are talking about Gradualism versus the fossil record. Yes. Like the argument is that the, there is no evidence of development over long periods of time. Is that at, will, at what l- point in the fossil are we talking? Is the argument here also for like in between, like the ancestor of the horse to the horses, where there seems to be some or
0: Right, or yeah. Or are
2: we talking at an earlier point like Hampton explosion or something where there seems to be? Yeah, not?
0: yeah, good, good question. So there are um, uh, controversial discussions about some uh, fossil series of things like, particularly famously, the, the horse. Yeah, so there is right. the evolution of the horse, the, the whale. Uh, so a, a, a whale lives in the sea from something that just lived on the land, and those, those kind of changes. Uh, but I, th- I think the argument here would simply be that, uh, at, a, at a general overview level, um, as um, you know, atheists like Stephen Jay Gould, uh, back in the oh, 70s, yeah, yeah. Was, was sort of arguing when he came up with his theory of punctuated yeah. equilibrium, saying what the fossil record shows is you get relatively, in, in, you know, in geological time terms, relatively quick bursts of origin of new types of animals. And then long periods where things just stay the same stasis and some things die off. And then you get a new burst of variation. So, yeah, things like uh, the Cambrian explosion, but there have been a number of those kind of explosive origins of lots of variation in a very short, geologically speaking, moment of time. Uh, And not what you would have predicted from what Darwin says about Everything has to work through this very gradual accumulation of little changes, gradually, gradually adding up, and gradually diverging. So that Darwin, you know, the only illustration in Origin of Species is the tree of life, where you go from the universal common ancestor, and you get this gradual diversification over time, branching, blah 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 blah. What the fossil record seems to show is you, you know, you have a few, uh, we can see a few forms of relatively simple life, and then boof lots of changes, and then boom and boomf. Um okay. and, and so that's as a sort of macro uh, level. So I don't think it, it necessarily needs to get into discussions about uh, those sort of controversial fossil series at that level of, could this kind of mammal turn into that kind of mammal, yeah. kind of thing. Uh, um, we can, we can talk at a broader uh, level of that, of the argument. still. doesn't really seem to fit what you would have predicted from, from the theory. Yeah, uh, and so Stephen Jaygould, who I mentioned, was a, a, an atheist paleontologist from the States. He, he brought forward this theory as what he called punctuated equilibria, where he thought, well, maybe very small populations of animals cut off in some sort of cut off situation under lots of pressure could diversify, change very, very quickly, um, and you get lots of change in a small space of time uh, somehow. And o- other people sort of pointed out to him But yeah, but now you're trying to make the Darwinian watchmaker process uh, produce loads and loads of change very quickly, which is the opposite of what Darwin predicted. It doesn't seem that that's the whole point is that we need this, as Dawkins argued, these long, gradual changes over long periods of time for the process to, to be plausible, plausible as an engine of the diversification. So you can either make the theory fit the fossil record, as Jay Gold did, but then have, have a very implausible account of how you get that the, the, the bursts of diversification when you try and attribute it to a blind watchmaker process. Or you can say... Well, maybe it's not a blind watchmaker, <laughs> but we can have a theory that fits the fossil record more. I, I, I guess that's what I would argue. Yeah. Det
1: är en ganska avancerad diskussion, så det är utfordrande häng med på, så vi lärt oss i biologi eller filosofi. Men det är en bra fråga. Och det ser här att att här är olika men det som man ofta antar som en selvfølge, att evolution har förklarat allt. Det är ju en övertro. det är er så mänskas upp för så inte betyder att allt evolution är er ramlat samman. Sant. Men att det inte alls med förklara och och mer i förhållande till det första Mosebok hade kun designfrågsmåla och om i vilken grad evolutionsteorin förklarar något eller allt um for, or or um, they can brukes som argument för guds existens. Jag
0: jag tror jag tror we press on. Okay. So now uh, looking at the whole subject uh, of intelligent design theory um, particularly since the bless you, uh, late uh, sort of mid late 80s uh, the theory of intelligent design, as Meyer defines it here, uh, t- is just a theory that holds that there are there are telltale features of living systems uh, and the universe at large that are best explained by an intelligent cause rather than an unintelligent one. Uh, the theory doesn't challenge the idea of evolution, defined as change over time, or even common ancestry necessarily, but it does dispute Darwin's idea that the the cause of biological change is wholly blind and undirected processes. So, Intelligent Design Theory uh, consists of three core claims uh, and an implication, a fourth claim, which are really kind of the core of Intelligent Design. The idea that we have empirical evidence uh, in the natural world that passes one or more reliable tests or criteria for inferring when something really is the product of design, and if, if you've got those two things, it follows that uh, we have, uh, they would claim a scientific inference to design as the best explanation of that evidence. And an implication of that is that merely naturalistic explanations don't adequately explain the whole range of data uh, that we know about from the, from the natural world. Now, this implication is a necessary, but not a sufficient condition of intelligent design Uh, which is not not an invalid argument from ignorance. It's an argument from uh, knowledge. And we can really leave aside, for our purposes, the whole debate about whether or not intelligent design theory is legitimately a scientific theory uh, because, as atheist Thomas Nagel again points out, a purely semantic linguistic classification of a hypothesis or its denial as... Belonging or not to science is of limited interest to anyone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or false. Uh, and of course, uh, arguments and conclusions can be true uh, and rational and so on, even if they're not scientific, because science is not the only way to know. Uh, that's the whole discussion about scientism. Um, but. You know so uh, I go with uh, Nagel here and I, I would just simply argue that if you ended up thinking that intelligent design theory was true it would be just really awkward to deny it the name of being science because then you know what what do you do say no this intelligent design stuff it's true but it we must classify it as theology or philosophy or something and so what we need to do is transfer loads of money from the biology department to the philosophy department in order to uh, know. Uh, how the biological world uh, really works, uh, really has has come about and so on. Um, Clearly not, you want the biologists to to be doing uh, the work. So, let's look at detecting design and then a few illustrations of applying that uh, test to some things in nature. Reliable design detection criteria. uh, Various ones are put forward. I'm uh, going to concentrate on one. So here's Bill Craig talking about, uh, as a basis for a design inference, uh, in addition to high improbability or complexity, uh, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern. And when these two elements are present, we've got specified complexity, which is the tip-off to intelligent design. He gives this nice illustration. He says, for example, in a poker game, Any deal of the cards is equally and highly improbable, highly complex. But if you find that every time a certain player deals the cards, he's the one that ends up with all four aces, you can bet that this is not the result of chance, (laughs) but of design. (laughs) That will not go down very well in in, uh, the Dodge City Saloon bar, you know. Uh, And Dawkins uh, agrees with this, just as one illustration, that there's actually a lot of general consensus on this, uh, even amongst people who don't agree with intelligent design theory, the whole thing. But this part of it is quite a common ground, actually. And I wrote a paper on that a while back. So Dawkins, talking about the apparent design of the biological world, says that you and I and every living creature are machines of ineffable complexity, uh, of a magnitude to challenge our credulity. Uh, and helpfully he defines his terms and he says complexity here basically doesn't just mean complexity he says complexity here means statistical improbability in a non-random direction the direction of seeming designed for a purpose of achieving a purpose Uh, and Dawkins in various places has acknowledged that specified complexity is a plausible indicator of design so in the blind watchmaker he has this illustration of finding an open combination safe. And he says, of all the unique and equally improbable positions of the combination lock, say say the combination is 10 numbers long. Well, any series of 10 numbers is just as unlikely, just as complex as any other series of 10 numbers. It's one possible series of 10 numbers out of all of the possible series of 10 numbers. Okay. But Dawkins argues that the best explanation of an open safe like that isn't that, well, someone got lucky. It is rather that someone knew the, the specific, the one combination, the one series of numbers that's specified by the mechanism as the one series of numbers that will open the lock. Okay, This specific and complex combination is what gives us the clue, the telltale sign of design. Or in an uh, article in Free Inquiry magazine, uh, Dawkins' has specified complexity takes care of the, the sensible point that in the unique disposition of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts tossed about in a box is as improbable as what he calls a fully functioning, genuinely complicated watch. Uh, what's specified about the watch is that it's in, improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. So if you got all these bits of watch in a box and you shake it, the the product is one random arrangement of bits of watch out of all the possible random arrangements of those bits of watch. So it's very, very unlikely that you end up with that particular random arrangement of watch bits. But you can't look at this and go, well, you know, any arrangement of watch bits is unlikely, isn't it? What is there to explain? say so, yeah but this particular <laughs> unlikely arrangement of watch bits happens to be specified by achieving the function of telling the time <laughs> yeah and dawkins would agree that that is an indicator that it was designed and didn't just come up, come about by me shaking the box for long enough okay so let's try and apply that design detection criteria to some examples uh, that id theorists have drawn to people's attention. Empirical evidence that they claim passes that test, and if it does, you get this design inference. So Darwin uh, helpfully came up with, and this is nice of him, came up with a way of falsifying his his theory. He said if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight uh, modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Uh, his being a little generous to himself because surely it would be enough to show that there was a complex organ that was sufficiently unlikely to have come about by a series of slight modifications over time. And uh, Michael Behe famously, in his first book, Darwin's Black Box, pointed to some examples that we now know of, he thinks, uh, through our discovery of these molecular machines inside the cell and so on, uh, that, uh, that meet that kind of criterion. Uh, systems uh, that are, he calls them, irreducibly complex. That is a, a, a single system composed of several multiple well-matched parts that interact together to produce a basic function where if you took one of the parts away, the system stops achieving that function. Uh, Other people have tinkered with the definition in more philosophical terms since. But you get the the general idea. If I show you this uh, diagram and and pictures of a little uh, rotary motor uh, that some bacteria use to swim around with called the bacterial flagellum. Uh, He uh, puts this forward as one of his uh, examples. And he says uh, irreducibly complex systems like this. He says can't evolve what he calls directly through uh, a series of slight successive modifications, because by definition, any direct precursor to that functioning system that was missing one of the parts, by definition, it wouldn't be achieving the function because you need all of the parts there. You know, you can't have an outboard Mocha that works without a paddle, without an engine, without a connection from the engine to make the paddle go around, etc. But that doesn't mean it couldn't have evolved indirectly, that you couldn't have things that shifted their function over time as they gradually evolved and ended up as an outboard motor. But Behe points out that such systems, IC systems, are very unlikely, unlikely to evolve indirectly. He says, as the complexity of the interacting system increases, the likelihood of such an indirect uh, evolutionary root drops and so, in effect, uh, a system, if there is one that is irreducibly complex, is in effect uh, a system that exhibits specified by the function complexity. Uh, here's Dawkins talking about uh, the seeds from a willow tree in his garden. He says, at the bottom of my garden is a large willow tree. And it's pumping downy seeds into the air containing DNA. Whose coded characters, the arrangement of the amino acids along the, the spine of the DNA molecule, uh, spell out specific, specific instructions for building willow trees. Or at least parts of. Uh, it's raining instructions out there. It's raining programs uh, that is not a metaphor, he says. It is the plain truth. Uh, DNA is not analogous to a program or a string of instructions. It is uh, uh, mathematically identical to, it is instructions. So Stephen Mayer again uh, will argue that there's simply too much information in a cell to be explained by chance alone. There's too much information to get it all in one leap. Uh, the information in DNA and RNA and so on has been shown to defy explanation by forces of chemical necessity. It doesn't The arrangement of amino acids doesn't have to be that way. And you can see that's got to be true because if the arrangement had to be the way it is because of physical forces, then it couldn't contain different sequences that that gave different instructions for building different things. Because it would always have to contain the same kind of arrangement of things. So saying saying that the the arrangement of amino acids is explained by, by physical forces is like saying that a headline in a newspaper arose as the result of chemical attraction between ink and paper. Uh, There are physical forces at work that that keep the amino acids attached to the sequence but the physical forces don't determine the sequence and it's the sequencing of the amino acids that contains the information for creating the proteins so that the proteins will fold in the right way to become the little machines that do the right jobs. So, So DNA functions like a software program and we know from experience that software comes from programmers. Um, interesting just a recent uh, peer-reviewed journal paper came up with this result uh, Geordie Pappas from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Essex and then one of their key take-home results was uh, that the evolution of animals was driven by a burst of new genes not seen in the evolution of their unicellular ancestors so there was this, this burst of new genetic information uh, and uh, you know, getting lots of genetic information in a short period of time uh, well that seems to be an instance of specified complexity that you can neither uh, reasonably attribute to chance and or necessity but does pass this criteria uh, that we know in our experience is a tip-off to design so you can, you can argue as Mayer does in his book Signature in the Cell Uh, things exhibiting specified complexity are best explained as the product of design. Um, After all intelligence is the only known cause of uh, information of that kind. But secondly life exhibits specified complexity in things like the large amounts of functional information at the origin of life or in the origination of lots of new animal body plans Uh, from which it follows, if those two premises are both true, it follows that therefore the best explanation of life includes an appeal to design. Now, of course, that doesn't get us to therefore God exists. You will notice the conclusion of the intelligent design argument is therefore the best explanation of life includes an appeal to intelligent design. And people can argue about what the most plausible candidate for producing that design is. Uh, So you need, in order to get to conclusion number five that would support theism, the conclusion that therefore the best explanation of life is a theistic one, you've got to add another step on. We need premise four. We need some sort of argument that the best explanation of premise three being true is a theistic one, rather than saying with I don't know, an atheist like Fred Hoyle or the Raylian UFO cult. Well, of course, you know, humans are the product of design. We were designed by our alien overlords. Or, you know, um, possibly, you know. Uh, why not say aliens did it? Uh, well, for one reason, presumably, it's very difficult to think of aliens that would not themselves contain specified complexity, which would call out for a design explanation. Um, how do you stop that kind of infinite regress of explanations? Something that will tie in with your discussion of the cosmological argument earlier. How do you stop an infinite regress? Well, you need some kind of designer that does not itself require design. Now, that starts sounding a bit more like the, the theistic idea of God, doesn't it? You see, And you could argue the theistic idea of God is a simpler explanation than, say, appealing to multiple gods or to aliens or whatever. You could say it's an explanation that has other arguments in its favour. We've already got the Kalam cosmological argument pointing to a transcendent creator. Uh, So um, that makes it more plausible to see this as, as adding to the overall sort of cumulative case of data that is overall best explained in a cumulative case by appealing to a theistic worldview, uh, to explain everything that we think we know about reality and so on. So intelligent design is concerned with one to three. When we want to plug that into natural theology, philosophy of religion and so on, we, we need to do uh, step four to five on the end there to, to get us to a theistic conclusion.